I want to greet each one of you in Jesus' name this morning. It's good to be here. I'd like to share from a scripture from Luke 2, Jesus' words. If you want to turn to that. Actually, not so much Jesus' words, but about Jesus. Now, some people have a hard time getting into Christmas, but I have a hard time getting out of it. I, uh, I just really enjoy uh, the, the story and the, and the pieces of the puzzle coming and going in this, uh, in this the advent of Christ coming to earth. Luke 2, 25-35. Uh, let's stand to read this, this passage. Jesus presented in the temple. Now when the days of her purification according to the law of Moses were completed, they brought him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who opens a womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. So he came by the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child, Jesus, to do for him according to the custom of the law, he, Simeon, took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared before the face of all peoples, a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. And Joseph and his mother marveled at those things which were spoken of him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is destined for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign which will be spoken against. Yes, a sword will pierce through your own soul also, that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. You may be seated. What I'd like to focus on this morning is this one statement that Simeon makes after the longer um, discourse. He pronounces this blessing. Behold, this child is destined for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign which will be spoken against. And we were uh, reading through this. Um, it happened that I was reading through this the same time that we were moving through the book of Acts. And I shared a little bit of uh, my thoughts on this uh, some time ago. I hope if you remember that, that you not hold it against me to bring it up again. But this morning, I've, I've titled the, the message, Fall and Rise. Fall and Rise. And it, it um, I, when I read through this passage, I somehow that Fall and Rise stood out to me this child will be is set for the fall, fall and rising again of many in Israel. And it, it just really struck me, what does this mean? What did it mean for the people there, for Israelites? What does it mean for me today, for us today? What does it mean 
over all, eternally. The fallen and the risen. And I'll be probably, uh, throughout through the message, I'll probably switch this to the rise and fall simply because uh, that's a little easier for me to, uh, to uh, stick in my mind. It goes together more easily, but I don't think it screws, or skews, I should say, skews the meaning at all. Why was accepting why was accepting Jesus such a difficult fall for the Jews? Thoughts that come to my mind, the Jews had a very patriotic patriotic attitude. You know, being Jewish is an identity. Uh, there was a good heritage there for the Jews, providing, especially providing you skipped over some very difficult and embarrassing segments of Jewish history and landed in, in David's kingdom. Either the Jewish heritage was a proud heritage, was a strong uh, for the Davidic uh, kingdom, and that's where many of them placed their identity. Of course, they skipped over some of those more uh, negative spots. And to be true, to be to be true to, uh, or to be fair, uh, all peoples have their black sheep. All families probably have their black sheep or their spots, so they just assume not. Uh, delve into uh, so, but the Jewish people they they thought of themselves as David's people, and that's where they were wanting, planning uh, to to be at again in that Davidic period, and the Messiah would come from David, and he would, you know, raise up, he would defeat the enemy, is what they had in mind. They were a patriotic people, they had a patriotic attitude, they were nationalistic. The Jews had a very well-developed social structure. It was a structure based on their religion. It's a structure that served their leaders very well. Uh, They had developed this structure based on their religion, but it wasn't necessarily uh, what God had intended. They went on beyond that and used this social structure. And with it came... Um, for their leaders, for the elite, came authority, prestige, and and income. Many other people had grown to depend on the religious structure as well. Merchants trading at the temple feast did well. That may have been their time when their Black Fridays may have come then. Um, Farmers growing sheep, inns that took in the pilgrims, the whole hospitality structure. Um, or industry was based on this, this, this Jewish uh, religious structure. Well, nothing upsets a man worse than the threat of loss of income. You know, if you want to get to a man's, man's feelings, why well, grab his pocketbook, it said. And if you look at uh, there at Paul, great, you remember him uh, speaking out against the idols and... Uh, People took issue with him because he was speaking against the great Diane or great Diana. They knew that if if everyone believed in his in what he was presenting in the gospel, that their industry would go to nothing. And the riot came because of that. Great, great as the Ephesians or great, you know, remember the the riot that took place. Well, I think the response of the Jews was similar to that of of of. Um, those merchants that, that made those idols. 
Um, they saw a threat of loss of, of income, a threat of, a, threat of a, have a uh, shakeup in their structure, a change of a way of life, the established practice of Judaism that favors um, the elite was being challenged by the perfect will of God, will of God that came through Christ, that favored all men equally. You know, the entitled in the old way found themselves faced with the possibility of no longer being entitled. Naturally, they, being natural people, responded with force and used all their powers of influence to control or to mitigate their own demise that they saw coming through this, this gospel. And we saw this playing out through Acts as we went through the book of Acts. Whenever the Jews were faced with the message of the resurrected Christ, the majority would turn away or become visceral against that message. It was a threat to their ideology, their sense of identity and their sense of and their way of life. It became a source of stumbling and a rock of offense, as Jesus said it would. They willingly traded their heavenly inheritance for their earthly traditions and thereby became the fall that Simeon prophesied of. Paul, a self-proclaimed Pharisee of the Pharisees and an antagonist of, of Christ, he was part of that fall. But then we'll be looking at some contradictions here. There aren't truly contradictions, but seeming contradictions. So, Christ, so Paul, the, the, the rising Pharisee, he falls in, in Acts 26. When he had fallen to the ground, verse 14, Paul on the Damascus road, I heard a voice speaking to me and saying in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's his testimony here. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. So Paul took a fall. It's the, the converse effect of pride. When we think we're rising, we're quite likely falling. And our willingness to fall to ourselves, or I should say end in our willingness to fall to ourselves, we enabled God to, to work in us, a rise or resurrection power. And I'd like to look at that some more, the rising Paul. And I know we've talked a lot about Paul here the last several months. I'm not going to try to spend a lot of time here, but I think we need to, to look at that because he was a rising, he was a rising, he was part of the rise uh, that Simeon spoke about. 2 Corinthians 12.9 says, But he said to, to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly about my weakness, so that Christ's power may rest on me. Paul came to understand that in his weakness, in his willingness to give himself to Christ, that he actually became resurrected. My power is made perfect in weakness. Christ talking here. And then Paul says, I will glad, therefore more gladly, 
I will boast more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me, may lift me up. 2 Corinthians 12.10 says, This is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weakness, in insults and hardships and persecutions and difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am, then I am strong. For when I am weak, then I am strong. 1 Corinthians 1.17 For Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the word, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of none effect. Not with wisdom of words. He's saying, not of myself do I preach, or with my own wisdom. Wisdom of words. My mind went to meals. You know, many times, the most, at least for me, speaking for myself, the most satisfying meal is the meal that is the most basic in its makeup. And when I, I'll explain that, you know, beef roast or roast beef or whatever you want to call it, potatoes, green beans fried with, you know, some onions and a bit of garlic and, and then some uh, salad, some garden produce made into what we call a salad. You know, that's... Pretty basic ingredients. You don't have to do, go to a lot of, of um, steps. You just put that all together and you have a good meal. And um, you know, we can try to f fluff up uh, some good ingredients. And I'm not against casseroles, but you know, I'd I'd much rather just have the basic ingredients in their kind of in their rawish forms, just you know, cooked a bit, as opposed to to putting a lot of ingredients together and, and uh, coming up with what we call a casserole. That's just me. But um, it seems to me Paul is, is saying something here that goes back, you know, I'm just making that word picture there. That's going back to this. His, his preaching was not of his own. It was, he pulled straight out of the scripture. Um, he didn't try to put a, use a lot of eloquent words. He didn't try to put a, get together a casserole or a, a French meal. That's really not very. Uh, that's really not very satisfying in the end because they give you such small portions. Um, he he uh, he brought the word out. He said, "I delight in weakness and insult." No, he says, "Not with the wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made none effect." I don't put out my own words. I just I'm sharing what Christ shared to me. It's the real thing. It's not watered down, not soupy. It's the real product. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. Notice, notice the seeming contradictions here. I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. I will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For after that, in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. Now that's complicated enough for being basic. For the Jews require a sign and the Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified unto the Jews a stumbling block and unto the Greeks, foolishness. We preach Christ crucified. So we're saying that the crucified Christ, the weak Christ, 
which is unto the Jews a stumbling block and unto the Greeks foolishness, we're saying that there's the wisdom, there's the power. But unto them which are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Christ, the power of God, the crucified Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Verse 24, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For ye, for ye see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. And here's something for us to take into account, I believe. Not many wise men after the flesh, not many no mighty, not many noble are called. Now, that doesn't say that no mighty, no wise men, no noble, but it says not many. Not many of those that are well seated, are well, I should say, are well seated in society have their pride in their family or in their background or in what they've achieved. Not many of those respond to the gospel. We saw that today in our Sunday school lesson, how that, again, Paul called the Jews in and not many responded. And in some ways, I'm surprised any responded. To me, the, to me it's sometimes more surprising that that any Jews responded of the hierarchy, that's more of a surprise than it is that so few of them responded. They had so much to lose when you look at it in, a, in an earthly sense. Those that were well-seated in their culture, the patriotism, the income, the way that it, the structure was set up, they had so much to lose by taking on Christ. It... It, uh, it just goes to show, the, the, to me, the power of the gospel in a man's life who truly, truly wants the truth, who is seeking the truth. But God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, and God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound or mess up the things which are mighty. And the base things of the world and things which are despised, God hath chosen, yea, and the things which are not to bring to naught things that are. That no flesh should glory in his presence. I could insert here in his own presence. But of him that, but of him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that according as it is written, he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. Brother Dan shared that verse last Sunday. Uh, him that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. So, those that would rise, truly rise, let that person uh, glory in the Lord, in the crucified Lord, the one that the, the Jews or the one that to the Jews is a stumbling block and to the Greeks foolishness. But him that truly would rise, let him glory in the Lord. The rising kingdom, <clears throat> continuing this theme, uh, Mark twelve twenty six says in this, touching unto the dead, Jesus speaking here, that they rise. Have you not read in the book of Moses how in the bush God spake unto him, saying, I'm the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. 
He is not the God of the dead, but the, but the God of the living. Ye therefore do greatly err. He's speaking to the Sadducees. Didn't believe in the resurrection. The advent of Christ brought the rise of God's wisdom and the fall of man's wisdom. The rise of little things. The fall of great things. Perceived to be great things. The rise of love. The fall of hate. The rise of goodwill. The fall of covetousness. The rise of the heavenly kingdom in the hearts of men. And the fall of the power of evil to control the hearts of men. The fall of the power of evil. The fissuring of the power of evil to control the hearts of men. Luke 13, 18. Jesus speaking, What is the kingdom of heaven of God like? And to what shall I compare it? It is like a mustard seed, which a man took and put in his garden, and it grew and became a large tree. And the birds of the air nested in its branches. If you look up a mustard tree or a mustard bush, um, and I'm going to go with the bush this morning because as far as I could tell, a mustard tree is what we would actually call a bush. It's probably not going to grow more than seven feet tall at, at best, maybe nine at best, but more likely four or five feet tall. If Jesus was talking about another kind of tree, then the, the uh, uh, word picture here is just as, does just as well. It's still a small seed and a large tree, but I suppose he was talking about more of a large bush which a man took and put in his garden for mustard seed. They, they, they used mustard seed then. It had um, medicinal qualities, medical qualities. That it had, they used it uh, for, as a herb for cooking. And so you put, this, you put this little seed, and this little seed is, from what I can tell, is about the size of the end of my pinky, maybe, or smaller. Very, very small seed. And from that seed grows up a nice bush. Nice, uh, fruitful bush that's, that's useful for them. It grew, became a large tree. The birds of the air nested in its branches. And so we see this little seed, the size of a, maybe a dot of a marker. And we see this large bush growing from it. From something very small, the, the word picture is, comes something significant. From something very insignificant, seemingly insignificant, grows something nice, large, and fruitful. And that is the beauty of the seed. You look at the tomato seed and you know what it produces. The acorn, the mighty tree. All starting as a small, insignificant seed but full of life. But the interesting thing is, and Jesus points this out, that the seed needs to die. Now, does it truly die? I'm not sure. I don't know how that all takes place. But in Jesus' words, the seed dies. It, in other words, it loses its identity. That outside crust falls away and something happens inside and it comes, opens up and it, it becomes significant. It becomes what the maker intended it to be. So the seed has to die to its original shape. 
You know, Christ was the seed of Christianity. He came small, insignificant to the world. Not as a babe with a crown on his head, but as a babe born to lowly parents. Insignificant parents. Noble parents, but insignificant. His introduction to the world, a cattle stall. However lowly his birth, he was the seed of God. He is the tree of life to mankind. He, the small seed of God, became the tree of life to mankind. We are a seed today, you and I. A seed born with a propensity to rise or fall. In falling, we rise. And in rising, we fall. In living, we die. And in dying, we are born. And while these seem like contradictions, they're true. In falling, we rise. And in rising, we fall. In living, we die. And in dying, we're born. The Herod that rose to destroy the Christ went to the grave defeated, fallen. The faithful Simeon who bowed himself to the Christ child went to his grave in victory. And I believe today he's enjoying the Christ child in a sense he could have never imagined. The seed born into a tree has, has potential for all kinds of good. It provides shelter, produces fruit, and becomes part of a, the landscape. More than that, there's the eternal significance. The seed of the kingdom risen to life in Christ is always, I believe, always rising. This earth is nothing but a nursery or temporary host for the seed, for us. Our seed. It's nothing but a temporary host or nursery. Eternal growth potential is there for the seed reborn in Christ. And I believe, I'm going to try to make this clear. The, the eternal significance of the seed of the kingdom risen to life in Christ, always rising. You know, when I think of that mustard seed, going back to that mustard seed, that little bitty seed, when it opens up and it sprouts out of the ground, you can see there's a plant that's growing. I think of that as the first chapter uh, in, its, in its life. And when I think of that, when I liken myself, us to that, I think of our life here on earth maybe as that being the first chapter in our lives. So our life... The seed has just opened up. It's become apparent. There's life there. It's growing. And the day the casket lid closes, and we saw that yesterday, for those of us who were here at the funeral, that's not the closing of the tree. That's just the letting that tree keep on growing, I believe. I believe that tree just keeps on growing for eternity. That mustard seed keeps on becoming fuller and fuller and more useful and more useful and more beautiful and more beautiful in that beautiful land where there's no time, where there's no chainsaws to clear the landscape. I believe 
the seed opening here is just the first book in the eternal volume that will be written about us. Here that seed is either opened to new life or it's left dormant or ground into powder, mustard. Luke 13.20 says, and again he said, take to what shall liken the kingdom of God. It is like leaven which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal till it was all leavened. So this woman took approximately 60 pounds of flour and worked a kind of leaven through it. Perhaps it was a yeast or fermented wine. Worked it into there. That wine, as I understand, or that fermented fermentation that's in the yeast produce gases which help the dissolvement of the, the materials in there. I don't understand it completely. But it breaks down the sugar and it makes those ingredients that are in the yeast bind, produce gluten, and um, works into a, a good bread dough. And that's how the kingdom of God, Jesus is likening the kingdom of God to. It's a, it has a way of just moving through the materials that are here. And each one of us is one of those materials. You know, without this Christ leavening agent in our lives, we're a dough that falls flat, so as to speak. A mustard seed that doesn't sprout. A material without a future. You know, in and of ourselves, we may be good and useful to society, to those around us. Maybe we're a fine specimen of manhood or womanhood. Like a lot of good mustard seed blended together, we'll make a fine mustard on that ballpark hot dog. A person without Christ's leavening can be only be useful for a while. It's short-lived. It can be useful, but only for a time. However useful he or she is, the truth, the truth is that without giving oneself to Christ, dying and being reborn and coming to life, being born into new, newness of life, the person is actually shortchanging his potential or her potential for eternity. And that's sobering. You know, by denying death, we're actually shortchanging our potential for eternity. Imagine being able to grow and grow and grow through this life and then on and on and on and on and on into eternity. No end of potential. No here today and gone tomorrow. Rather, always, always sharing the potential and glory of Christ. Always sharing the glory glorying in the glory of Christ. Trading that for a bit of, at the best, a bit of usefulness here. Now that doesn't mean that when we die to ourselves and become new in life, that doesn't mean we can't be useful here. We can actually become much more useful here. But there's a usefulness that's found in Christ instead of in ourselves. A glory that's in Christ instead of ourselves. 
I believe we are capable of rising or falling from whatever point we're at right here today. And I believe the truth is, I believe that we're either rising, part of the rising kingdom or part of the falling kingdom, a kingdom cast out of heaven, hurled in, into an eternal free fall. We're either one in one of those kingdoms right now here today either part of the rising or the falling. So I was studying this uh, little children's song came into my mind that we used to sing growing up. It goes like this, I'd rather be a little one climbing up than a big one tumbling down. I'd rather be a junior with a smile than a senior with a frown. I'd rather be poor and love the Lord than rich and lose my crown. I'd rather be a little one climbing up than a big one tumbling down. And isn't that the truth? It's not, it's not so important where we're at in our rise or fall, but that we're headed the right direction. And we, we're either we're going one way or the other. We're called to positively identify with the risen Christ. In Luke 13.22, Jesus says, 13.24, Jesus says, Strive to enter through the narrow gate. For many, I say to you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen up and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and knock at the door, saying, Lord, Lord, open for us. He will answer and say to you, I do not know you. Where are you from? Then you will begin to say, We ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. He will say, I tell you, I do not know you. Where are you from? Depart from me, all you workers of iniquity. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God and yourselves thrust out. This was a very stark message to the people, the Jews that were listening to him there. You know, they were conveniently on the, what they thought was on the fence. They could go either way. And Jesus is saying, you need to positively identify with me if you want me to be, if you want me to know you, they will come from the east and west, the Gentiles, from the north and south, and sit down in the kingdom of God. And indeed, there are last who will be first, and there are first who will be last. And the first and last, I believe, in this text is closely correlates with the fall and rise that Simeon was talking about. And I think the first layer message here is to the Jews. The, the Jews lost their rank in God's spiritual house by their refusal to embrace Jesus. That was the fall. God's Son is Messiah. Those who accepted God's Son as Messiah, that was the rise. Those Gentiles that embraced Jesus as Savior became first in God's household along with all the other Jewish first. Those who embraced the Christ. Individuals rose and fell there in that this first few days of Christ's advent. And in the time of the early church today, individuals are rising and falling. And individuals will eternally rise and fall based on their decision of Jesus and their willingness to embrace or deny Him. It's not enough to know. 
we must identify with, be filled with. And I'm speaking to myself this morning. We must embrace Christ's identity. I believe that's what I'm seeing here in Scripture, and it's, it's, uh, there's real seriousness about it when we read this Scripture. Even to die to our own identity. James 2.19 says, You believe that there is one God, you do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. But you want to know. But do you want to know, foolish man, that faith without works is dead? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Are we in? Have you ever heard that? Has ever, anyone ever asked you that question? It's been asked of me. Are you in? You know, you're looking at a deal. You're looking at maybe you're part of a game, part of a project. The question becomes imperative. Are you in or not? Um, the rest of the players want to know, or you want to know from a you know, potential player, are you really in? Are you going to be loyal? Are you going to be part of our team? You know, have we asked ourselves this question concerning the kingdom of heaven? Are we really in? What evidences are there that we're in? What evidence of being in is having skin in the game? That's always reassuring to the players that are in. To know that this person has skin in the game. He has financial skin in it. Or he has whatever. But he has something in it that he'll lose if he, if he doesn't go through with it. You know, he stands to gain or lose according to how the game goes or the project goes, or the partnership goes. You know, placing ourselves in a position where we can conveniently play on either side is never in. That doesn't count. We have to either be part of or not. What are the evidences that we're really in? I think there's, that's a question to ask ourselves. The, reward, the rewards of being part of the, king, of the rising kingdom. And I'd like to look at some contrast here. Some contrast I wrote down. And I'm sure you'll be, you'd be able to think of more. Soon after the new year, I called a fellow brother here in our church and talked a bit about the new year. And he, says, he said, made the following statement, out with the old and in with the new. And... Uh, I had to think of that when I was writing these, out with the old, in with the new. Um, as we read through there, think of that a bit. In the second advent of Christ, the saints will rise to eternal life. The sinners will fall to eternal death. The saints will rise to eternal gratitude. The sinners will fall to eternal complaining. The saints will rise to eternal praise. The sinners will fall to eternal protest. The saints will rise to eternal glory. The sinners will fall to eternal ignominy or shame. The saints will rise to meet a master who gave all for their salvation. The sinner will fall to meet their master who gave all to bring them to defeat. The saints will rise to serve the creator of the universe. The sinner will fall to serve the destroyer of all created. Although he won't have succeeded, but he'll, he will have breathed. The saints will rise to serve the creator of the universe. The sinner will fall to serve the destroyer of all created. 
The saints will rise to eternally explore the new. The sinner will fall to eternally regret the old. The saint will rise to be eternally healed. The sinner will fall to be eternally afflicted. The saint will eternally rise to kneel in reverence and humbly cast his crown before his Savior. The sinner will eternally stumble in front of his tormentor, filled with rage but helpless to do otherwise. Those are just some thoughts that came to my mind of the contrast of those that are willing to die and be raised to life and those that are not willing, not willing to let that seed sprout into newness of life. Eternal contrast. Nobility, nobility that rises, nobility, true nobility that rises is couched in the glory of Christ. That no flesh should glory in His presence. 1 Corinthians one twenty nine. But of Him are ye in Christ Jesus, of who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that according as it is written, He that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. Let's rise and not fall. We have that opportunity and I praise God that we are risen as we serve Him. God bless you.